Howdy, howdy. I want to thank you all for your patience. Uh, today we will be doing a filler episode. I'm going to call it a filler episode, even though it is uh, something that's really important to me as a music connoisseur, as well as a musician, is that uh, the classical music. Um, so my personal journey in classical music, uh, when I was a little kid, I was exposed to a lot of Wagner. And Wagner just kind of became, you know, just music to me. It was, just normal music was the Wagner back when I was a little kid. My uh, my great aunt, uh, she used to be a college professor, huge academic, and uh, she was really into Wagner, turned me on to that. She owned some land out in uh, Arkansas, and uh, I have fond memories of her blasting Wagner, singing along to it uh, one time while driving up mountains and drinking wine at the same time. Very lively lady. And... Uh, by the time I was 10, of course, I was already in the metal, and by the time I was 12, I was in the death metal. I didn't really get back into classical music that much. I did have a lot of various recordings. I had a Vladimir Horowitz playing Chopin and things like that when I was a kid, too. But uh, it wasn't until my uh, mid-20s, I would like to say like 24, 25, when I started getting back into classical music. Uh, the, the metal obsession was starting to wane a little bit, even though I'm still really obsessed with metal. But... Um, it was really Beethoven. I was like, let me listen to this Beethoven guy who a lot of people were chatting about. And Beethoven was that catalyst for me to go headfirst into classical music. And uh, from Beethoven, I became really, really obsessed with all periods. I would say more of the Romantic and Modernist periods. But I do like a great share of Baroque music and Classicism as well. So I figure a good structure for today's chat, just to kind of raw dog it, go through some YouTube videos. This might be yanked because uh, um, I will be sharing a lot of audio samples so you guys can hear what I'm chatting about and not necessarily, you know, just just hearing the words of what I'm saying. And I will be, of course, biased. I will be sharing music that I personally do love a lot. And you guys are welcome to share your own opinions in the comments section. Let me know what you like, what you don't like. And anything that I have left out because the world of classical music is so vast, um, I'm only um, incorporating a small part of it into today's chat. So, um, starting out with Baroque music, uh, Baroque music uh, was really started being ushered in in like the 1600s, around 1750, around there. Um, so, the Renaissance had a Louis load and uh, there was a lot of things going on at Baroque. Um, so it wasn't just, you know, a musical movement. It was also cultural movement and all of that. And uh, it was architecture and art. It was very, uh, the focus was on huge extravagance, and especially that a lot of uh, the music of the Baroque period was for the Catholic Church and, you know, how uh, ornate the, the church aesthetic is and all that. But uh, um, so there are some really notable composers. I will only be sharing uh, some music from a couple of them. Um, like I said, I, I do like Baroque a lot. However, um, when it comes to this specific period, uh, I typically don't go to it first. Usually it's more romanticist or modern uh, music. But uh, w one of my favorite composers from the Baroque period is uh, Buxtehude. And uh, Buxtehude was the guy who really influenced... Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. So everyone knows who Bach is. You know, Bach wrote a billion pieces, and uh, it, I, I have chatted with uh, some experts, um, music professors, and all that in regard to uh, the the musical side of the Buxtehude in contrast to the Bach. And 
it's uh, rather clear that uh, Bach was the superior composer. However, I feel that there's a fucking feralness to the books of Huda here and there. And I do have a piece I want to share with you guys to kind of exhibit that. Um, the Chichon and C minor. I'll skip towards the uh, the middle here. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll just shut up. Um, let me actually turn off my mic here and I'll let the music play for you guys. you guys found that a little interesting with the one section was just the arpeggio uh playing faster and faster and faster and just creating all that tension uh i feel that uh books of huda was a 
quite a wonderful composer. Um, of course, you know, that's uh, the Baroque period where a lot of the music was written on the organ, as well as uh, ensembles were starting to be created at this time, too. Um, and I believe at this time as well that uh, the, the troubadours are still roaming around the secular, you know, music people uh, singing about courtly love and all that, kind of like what we view as the uh, the pop music of today, uh, you know, away from the church and all that, and, you know, not as structured and, you know, more folk and uh, all of that. Um, so the Baroque period also uh, had, you know, of course, Vivaldi. Everyone knows Vivaldi's Four Seasons, but uh, he wrote some other um, interesting pieces, um, as well as Handel. Um he is a uh, composer I really don't visit that much, but I do like his, uh, what is it called? Not the Waterworks. Why do I always think about Waterworks with that guy? But he was a he was an Anglophile. He was buried in like Westminster or some shit like that because he was really into uh, the the Anglo culture and all that. And I, I view myself, I'm a little bit of a germ, Germanophile. Um, but uh, yeah, he was a German who was an Anglophile and, um, you know, Long Live the Queen and all that. God Save the Queen. Uh, but a, another interesting composer that uh, I quite like um, from the specific period is uh, Marion Marius. Um, he was just a court musician out of France. Marius, uh, Bills of St. Genevieve. There we go. So we got that uh, Marion Marius queued up here. I'm just going to play a little bit of this. It's bouncy Baroque music. Nothing... Uh, really sophisticated or anything like that just kind of just a catchy little tune that I've always quite liked and uh, And hopefully this is new to you something new for you to discover. Um, so yeah, this is Marin Marius um, He wrote uh, some interesting music too if you want ever delve into his discography I know our friend uh, Dauber Beverly. He just had a kidney stone and uh, Marin Marius does have a song about uh, uh, the bladder stone operation and some Something like that is what it's called, and it's, it's quite funny. Um, but yeah, being that he was a court musician, uh, he could get away with doing things like that. And he wrote a lot of music uh, in general. So uh, yeah, let, let me go ahead and play a little bit of the St. Genevieve for you guys. And uh, this, like I said, this is more of like the low-hanging fruit of Baroque, not really sophisticated, anything like that. It has one motif, and it just kind of repeats it over and over and over. But of course, it expands it, a lot of flourishes and things like that. Um, and I haven't personally heard this in like 10 years, so yeah. All right.
All right, all right. Um, so yeah, that was that one simple motif played over and over and over. Um, I do believe he does a little modulation later on in that piece, but I'm not going to bore you guys to death. If you didn't like that, you wouldn't like the rest of the piece. Um, there is another composer. Uh, I believe, it, yeah, he was also French. Um, and uh, this one you may not know. Um, his name was Rebel. Um, the Rebel guy. But he came out this piece, uh, uh, The Elements. That I'll put in the... Yeah, um, chaos, yeah, this goes straight to chaos. So then he's just going over the different elements. A very forward-thinking uh, composer here. Um, uh, very, yeah, like I said, progressive. Um, not really confined to the ornate. Well, there's, there's some ornate aspects to his you know, music because it was from the Baroque period. But he was more wild, um, we shall say, than uh, many of his contemporaries. So yeah, let's play some Rebel. Um, I'll just play a, a bit of this so you guys can kind of understand. <laughs> There's some dissonance going on even in the Baroque period. So uh, yeah.
so that was uh, the rebel. Um, and that was actually for a ballet. Can you imagine ballet dancers trying to dance to that? I guess they'll just tumble around like they're drunken fools. Um, you know, entropy, you know, the chaos. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, let's wrap up the broke period of some Bach. Um, so we listened to that book, Sahuda, first. And, uh, yeah, and I, Bach was really greatly influenced by that guy. Um, so let's go ahead and... Uh, Let's bring up some Bach here. Um, everyone knows a lot of you know Bach pieces. This is one of those hidden gems. It's not really you know hidden. It's still kind of a popular piece here, but uh, as you can see, 1.3 million views. Um, however, I, I I do like it quite a bit, and I think it exemplifies a lot of different characteristics that Bach had in his uh, arsenal. So uh, yeah, let's go ahead and uh, wrap up the broke period with some uh, Bach.
All right, yeah, those, I'm just playing snippets today, so if you really enjoy that, please feel free to you know, look it up for yourself and enjoy it. That was the Fantasia Fugue and a G minor. Yeah, I think that was G minor. Yes, it was. That was that G minor. All right, so that wraps up the class or the Baroque period. Um, so uh, we'll move on to the classical period now. Uh, thank you. Okay, I've refilled my beer stein, and now we are ready to tackle that classicism stuff. So uh, I did forget to mention that uh, if you like what you heard of Baroque music, however you wish it was in like a full orchestra format, um, the legendary American conductor Leopold Stokowski, um, he did release a, uh, a lot of music. He transcribed a lot of Baroque music for uh, full orchestra, and uh, that may be a, an easier gateway into Baroque music. Um, it's through the... Uh, the transcriptions for full orchestra that Stokowski had done. Um, so uh, classicism. So when we talk about the classical period, um, it is roughly from 1750 to about 1820, um, that time frame. Uh, so Baroque was all about huge extravagance and all of that, and you know, huge you know decorations and blah 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 blah. Classicism is kind of reining that in. Um, classicism is more about the form of the music rather than uh, you know, huge displays of extravagance. So, of course, uh, in the classical period, uh, there's two main composers that most people reference. Of course, there's the Mozart, and uh, there's also the Haydn. Um, uh, Beethoven, he was definitely a classicist as well. However, uh, he kind of blew off the walls classicism, so it's kind of murky especially his later output um and saying this you know classicism but uh um he kind of was like a proto-romanticist and we talked about that in the beethoven episode if you ever are curious about a deep dive into beethoven but uh with classicism you know like i said there's mozart and haydn um there was also a joseph kraus and i'm gonna play a he was like the swedish mozart uh, less of a uh, less refinement in terms of orchestration and all that um, also to mention this, uh, I'm doing this without notes. This is hilarious. But uh, um, the uh, the classical period ushered in the sonata form, and the sonata form would be something that would last until uh, the modern period of uh, classical music. Um, so the sonata form is basically you have your introduction, you flush out the initial ideas of the composition, and then you have you know, development and all of that. Um, and eventually there's a recapitulation where you uh, revisit uh, the, the themes that you've already gone through in the composition. And after, you, you know, it's usually A, B, A, B, you know, C or something like that for a sonata form. And eventually you reach a coda. A coda is, if you're unfamiliar with what a coda is, it's a summation of everything that came before. It's like, okay, we've gone through this journey of all these different themes. What, how are you going to tie that into a nice bow? And that's what a coda is. And a coda, there's no rules to a coda. You don't have to replay themes that have already been in the composition. You can just blow off the walls and do whatever the hell you would like to. But anyway, the classical period is what ushered in uh, a real real formal structure to the music. Not like, you know, the Marin Marius that we listened to, where there was a uh, uh, just one motif played over and over, a lot of ornate flourishes. Um, the classical period is more about form, reigning in all of that extravagance. And uh, yeah, so I, I did pick out a Mozart piece that you may not be familiar with. Um, for Mozart, my personal taste is more in like the later piano sonatas. Not, well, 
uh, later piano concertos, I should say. Um, and, and I'm not a big Mozart guy, but I understand that he was a genius and he was a very clever composer. Um, and I, I definitely recommend his later output um, more than his earlier stuff because he started composing when he was a child, and therefore there's a lot of child melodies um, in his music. Um, but when, once you start getting into his later discography, there's a lot of wonderful things to discover. I, I do view Haydn as a more visceral composer, and there's more Haydn in Beethoven than anything else. Um, of course, Beethoven's the ultimate to me. But uh, um, so yeah, I'm gonna play a, a, the Masonic funeral music from Mozart um lesser known piece by him and again I do want to if you're into Mozart and you like what you hear definitely check out uh some of the the later piano concertos that he wrote really really good um so yeah I'll go ahead and play this music and shut up Alright, so that was some Masonic funeral music by that Mozart guy. 
Um, again, I do want to put all the emphasis on his later output. Um, it was a little bit more mature. Um, and we can only imagine what he would have done if he had lived beyond the year, uh, age of 35. So, uh, I forgot to mention that uh, the symphony came to be during the classical period, um, thanks to Papa Haydn. Um, and Haydn, a wonderful composer, definitely check out the palindrome and all that by Haydn, uh, related to the Haydn piano sonatas as well. Um, but uh, I want to share, I'm, like I said, I'm not really into the classical period that much. However, uh, Joseph Krauss, um, the Swedish composer, uh, he not as refined as Mozart and Haydn. Um, like Haydn, I view as a little bit more visceral and, and more, like Haydn came out and so I had to be original with my music because everyone else sounded the same, which is true to an extent that, you know, when you strip back the extravagance of the Baroque period and you just focus solely on form, which was a lot of classical period, a lot of the composers were strictly adhering to the form. Um, so, and thus they, they started sounding quite alike. Um, but uh, Krauss, the symphony in uh, C minor, really wonderful thing. Um, yeah, let's go to the, uh, this is played on the period instruments here. So let's go here um, and play a little bit of that. So you guys, if you're unfamiliar with Krauss, um, here a little, a little bit of bombastic stuff going on in his music, um, which is, you know, I guess a, just interesting character. Um, but yeah, we'll play a little bit of Krauss and then uh, kind of wrap up the classical period. Like I said, I'm not really into this period as much as other periods. And once we get to Romanticism and Modernism, um, you guys will have a hard time shutting me up. So let's go ahead and get to that Krauss.
stuff's going on in that Krauss. Um, probably, uh, I've listened to quite a bit of Krauss, and I think this is his best symphony, personally. Um, but uh, hopefully, if you know this is new music to you, if you're not familiarized with Krauss and all that, um, for Beethoven, I'm kind of reluctant on sharing something by him because um, he did uh, kind of just blow off the walls of classicism. Um, so that that Krauss piece, if you've ever uh, listened to it or want to listen to it, it's definitely in the sonata form. And uh, all the movements, um, we we just heard the the introduction and all that, and uh, it comes back um, in a sonata form. So yeah, let's let's play a little Beethoven for you guys. Um, I think a good uh, section where he kind of blew out the walls is with the coda of the first movement of his Ninth Symphony. Um, so let's pull that up, and I'll play the coda. So it's not too long, but you'll you'll hear. Um, why Beethoven is drastically different than the, the Mozart, the Haydn, and uh, the Krauss. First movement. All right, all right. Let's see here. Yeah, this should be this a little long. I think this one's going to be better, the, the 15 minute one, rather. No, they're all about the same. Um, yeah, I'll just mute my mic and I'll play the coda to uh, this movement. So that's Beethoven, as you can hear, it's drastically different than the other classical composers that we heard. Um, for that Ninth Symphony in particular, um, I do like the Furt Vongler, uh, I think it was 1944, uh, recording of the, the Ninth. I know people call that the Nazi Symphony, and it's really, uh, really you know, rough around the edges, but I feel it lends itself to the music itself being that rough. Um, and it is more powerful sounding, um, but that's personal taste. Uh, Fred Vongler is a great fucking conductor for pretty much anything he put his hands on. So um, definitely recommend him for Beethoven as well as Bruckner. So uh, yeah, that's classicism and uh, the end of classicism, especially with that Beethoven. Um, so hopefully uh, you guys have heard something that you've liked from the Romantic period. Um, again, the uh, classical period, I should say. Um, again, I should say, uh, 
I'm not really much into the the classicism that much. There were a lot of other uh, Xaver Rister. Yeah, Xaver Rister was a pretty good uh, composer as well. Um, and you know, there's all kinds of classicists that just kind of sound the same. Honestly, that's why Haydn wanted to be original. For Haydn, I definitely recommend his later symphonies as well. Even though he did do some cool things in his uh the like around the 45th palindrome era and all that uh so Haydn uh again I recommend his uh, piano sonatas um there's a lot of early DNA that Beethoven would uh use from the Haydn um and again for Mozart the the later uh, piano concertos and symphonies um tend to resonate more with me personally um, you may have different milers depending on your taste. So, uh, yep, that's classicism. All right, all right. We're moving on to Romanticism next. All right, all right. Um, so we're on to Romanticism now. Um, I did not refill my beer because there wasn't uh, enough empty space in my beer to refill it. However, I did let my dog out in between classicism and Romanticism. So the Romantic period... Um, was roughly from like the 1820s to the 1880s around there. Um, this is where, uh, like Immanuel Kant, he blazed the world of philosophy and he synthesized the rationalist and empiricist schools of philosophy like uh, Rene Descartes. Um, he was, I think, therefore I am and everything is, you know, comes from the mind and is uh, rational. Um, whereas David Hume was a uh, empiricist and he viewed uh, consciousness as a bundle of fleeting perceptions like a fire every time you look at a fire it's in a different state um it's never the same it's always changing and morphing and other things that's why um, he viewed consciousness as a fleeting perception in the manual Kant, he synthesized those two philosophies and uh came out with his uh, transcendental idealism and so, yeah, he blazed the world of philosophy, and uh, after Kant, uh, a lot of uh, philosophers had to reconcile Kant in their own ways. There was a German idealist school of philosophy, uh, Fichte, Schelling, and Hegel, and uh, they had their different approaches to uh, Kant. For instance, uh, Fichte, he had more of a rationalist side of everything springing from the mind, and he you know, kind of reconciled Kant's philosophy um, in a more rational way. Whereas Schelling is everything derived from the natural world. And I tried to read a book by Schelling on his uh, nature of philosophy. And it was, it was dense. It was all like chemical reactions and shits. And, and of course, there's Hegel. And no one likes Hegel. So, um, And Schopenhauer, too. I don't consider Schopenhauer technically a German idealist. But he did have his own approach to Kantian metaphysics. And I wrote a very lengthy paper recently on that. And uh, so Beethoven did the same thing as uh, Kant did, um, except the music. He had blown out the walls of classicism, and therefore everyone just kind of just pick up the pieces and express their own. You know, Beethoven is very moody-esque music, um, and uh, so were the Romanticists. They are moody-esque individuals. There's a lot of fucking tragedy in Romanticism. Um... When it comes to like the early onset of Romanticism, uh, of course, there's the Mendelssohn. Uh, at the time uh, Beethoven died, uh, a lot of people were championing Mendelssohn. Um, and then there was the, the Little Mushroom, Schubert. And I say Little Mushroom with endearment, 
Um, let me bring up a picture of Schubert here. If you're unfamiliarized with what he looked like, there's a little mushroom there. Um, so our guy, and this guy, he kind of, he understood what the hell Beethoven was doing. He still operated in the sonata form. The sonata form wouldn't start dwindling out until the modernist period. So the sonata form is very strong in the Romanticist period. And this little mushroom, he just blazed the world of music. And of course, he was into philosophy too and a really profound individual. And he died too young. I think he was like 28 or something like that or 31 when he died. Um, and a very profound, very emotional music. And that's the thing about romanticism. There's a lot of tragedy and a lot of emotion. It's, you, they threw their whole beings into the music. So we went through the Baroque period where it was just huge extravagance. And then the classical period kind of reigns in that extravagance and just focuses on form. Well, what about using form but also being very emotional with it? That's what the romanticist period really was Beethoven just blew out the wall so much with this turbulent moody music that uh, it just kind of you had to reconcile that and uh, a lot of the composers in the Romanticist period they uh, they did and they had very profound emotional statements and I, I think if uh, Arthur Schopenhauer had lived to experience the true Romanticist period he would uh, definitely view it as the ideal in terms of his own aesthetics but, uh, yeah, this Schubert uh, is really one of the first to really champion the, the Romanticist kind of uh, culture that was forming. And uh, for Schubert, there's so many pieces. I would definitely recommend the, uh, the Unfinished, the Eighth Symphony, um, as an introduction if you're unfamiliarized with Schubert. Um, very flowing music. It's very beautiful, but also very turbulent. Um, I like that Beethoven. So uh, definitely check out that Schubert. Um, and of course, there, like I said, there was the Mendelssohn going on. Uh, Mendelssohn Fifth, I would say, is his, definitely his strongest work. Um, the Reformation um, Symphony. Um, so if you're into you know the Schubert and you like that, Mendelssohn's not too bad. Um, uh, actually, there's, there's one piece I could play for you. Nah, but uh, let's get into the better stuff. <laughs> I say better as... It's more of a more tragedy in there, uh, like Robert Schumann. Robert Schumann, he was also in the Middleson camp. Um, he was friends of Johannes Brahms, uh, and his wife was also a, a really great pianist. But uh, I recently attended a uh, music marathon of uh, some people in a classical music cult that I'm in, and uh, we did play the Rhineish Symphony. Um, Rhineish. Uh, and uh, let's see if this picks it up. Um, no, Symphony 2. I don't think it's called Adagio. Um, third movement. Let's see what we got here. Alright. Um, yeah, I'll just pull this one up and I'll skip to the. So, with the, the Rhinish, uh, it's kind of foreshadowing what would happen to Schumann. Schumann uh, threw himself into a river trying to kill himself and he was put into an insane asylum and uh, he ended up starving himself or getting an infection of some sort in the insane asylum after two years there. Um, a lot of tragedy um, in the, uh, the Schumann. Uh, but also he harkens back to uh, some Baroque, like Bachish types of modes with the Third Symphony. 
Um, the Fourth Symphony, I would say, is the the champion, the most popular by Schumann. Um, of course, he wrote a phenomenal piano concerto. Um, but the third, I, I would say, the third is something that I tend to revisit quite a quite a bit um, for the Schumann. So let me go ahead and bring up some music here, and uh, I'll skip to the the slow movement. Um, I thought it would be called a dodge, but it's not. But uh, yeah, let's go ahead and listen to some Schumann, some romanticist, emotional ass music. But this this movement also has like a an air of uh, Bach in it. So a uh, very interesting little snippet here.
All right, all right. So that's a little bit of Schumann, um, not the Schubert. Um, so a little mushroom and Schumann are different. Uh, both died before their time. Uh, one was self-inflicted and the other was uh, just tragedy. Um, like Mozart, if Schubert had lived longer, no telling what he would have done with his music. Uh, uh, like I said, Schumann, uh, third and fourth symphony is really great. Um, a little bit of quibbles with the orchestration here and there. In his works, he wasn't as refined as some other composers, um, but uh, really, really wonderful music, as well as his piano music in general. Um, really wonderful things going on there. Um, so the Romantic period, it, it did sprawl out a lot more um, in a lot of different directions than uh, the classicism did. Um, the, the French school of, of Romanticism, so there's the German school, with uh, Mendelssohn, uh, Schubert, Schumann, uh, Bruckner, Brahms, etc., etc., and then there's the uh, the French school. The French school had its own types of characters. You had the Berlioz, um, you had Bizet, and, and you also had uh, César Franck. Uh, Franck is a is a top ten composer for me. Franck is wonderful, um, as well as the Russian school. Russian school had their own flavors. They're trying to uh, when Russian classical started getting big, it was more about a, a national identity. Um, and there's a lot of exoticism in uh, Russian music where there's a lot of oriental flavors. Uh, the Rimsky-Korsakov, uh, uh, the second symphony, Antar, is really fucking wonderful. Of course, everyone knows Rimsky-Korsakov because Scheherazade. It's also a really wonderful piece as well, but I, have, I do view uh, some other pieces by uh, Rimsky-Korsakov to be... Uh, Freaking fantastic, um, as well as uh, his piano concerto. Um, it's a very lesser-known piece by Rimsky-Korsakov. Definitely check out his piano concerto. Um, and a fellow Russian of his was uh, Matis uh, Mizorsky. Uh, again, uh, definitely tapped into that Russian nationalism going on, delving into Slavic uh, folk uh, lore and all of that. Uh, everyone's uh, familiarized with the pictures at an exhibition. Uh, Samael had utilized a motif from that in one of their songs off a of ceremony of opposites, um, as well as the uh, the Great Gate of Kiev. Everyone knows that piece. <laughs> uh, a, a really wonderful composer. Um, it, he wasn't that good at orchestration though. Like uh, Night on Bald Mountain uh, was uh, orchestrated by a uh, Ravel. Um, he had cleaned it up quite a bit, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but uh, Mussorgsky he could write a good tune. Um, so, and we also talk about the Russian uh, romanticists. I would consider Tchaikovsky uh, a romanticist as well. Um, I've never really been a big into uh, Tchaikovsky. Uh, I did play a little bit of his music on a piano, I, a little bit of Swan Lake and B minor, just to kind of flush that out and understand what he was kind of doing there. Um, but uh, as a whole, I think the fourth and sixth symphonies are his stronger works. Um, again, it's another one of those composers that has a few really popular pieces that kind of overshadow his uh, ovoir, uh, much like that Rimsky-Korsakov. Um, as well as, you know, there was Czech music coming out at the time, too. You had Dvorak um, writing amazing fucking music, and a lot of uh, Dvorak's music um, came to light later um, after he had passed away. Uh, he had written more symphonies that people didn't know about. Uh, I would say definitely the 7th to ninth symphonies uh, are the best by Dvorak. Um, the 6th is really good too. 
Um, but yeah, the seventh and eighth, you know, those are understated symphonies. Uh, everyone knows the ninth, the new world, because uh, the finale kind of has that jaw, jaws motif, like dun 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 dun, dun. and then uh, yeah, so uh, I think I should uh, play a little Caesar Franck for you guys, and uh, I'm kind of thinking a good introductory piece if you're unfamiliar with uh, Caesar Franck is. Uh, the uh, the symphony that are the the first movement it starts out really dark I, I really do love the symphony quite a bit it reminds me of Sibelius in some ways um, but uh, uh, yeah Franck symphony number one starts out dark as hell but the second movement is very flowing music very beautiful um, Franck as Franck with a C K at the end not Frank <laughs> all right and we don't want a Bernstein uh, Bernstein Lenny, um, I love the guy. Uh, he, he did try very hard, but he did definitely missed the mark of a lot of different composers, Bruckner being one of them. But uh, yeah, Caesar Frog.
us a little bit of the the first symphony or the only symphony by Franck. Um, wonderful piece of music. I recommend it highly if you ever want to check that out. Um, as well as he wrote a lot of wonderful music in general. Um, uh, the Accursed Huntsman is like a Listian uh, symphonic poem. Really wonderful. Um, he wrote a song of the Jins <laughs> or Lis Jins. Um, another interesting, it's like a quasi piano concerto. It's really good. And, and a lot of wonderful uh, organ works that he wrote too. Uh, prelude, uh, fugue, and variation, and all that. Uh, wonderful pieces that uh, he had written. Very high minded when it comes to counterpoint. Um, very, very sophisticated. Very, you know, like I said, very high-minded. Um, so when we when we discuss the uh, the the German school of Romanticism, uh, there's 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 two factions that really emerged. Um, those the traditionalists like your, your Mendelssohn, your Brahms, and all of that. And I I, would, I guess Schumann as well was part of that traditional school um, because he was friends with Brahms. Um, but on the other side, there is the uh, the future of music, as Franz Liszt put it. There was the the progressives, um, and the progressives kind of go from uh, I guess like Berlioz kind of influenced a lot of the expression that would come out. Franz Liszt uh, definitely a major uh, figure there. Um, the chromaticism that Franz Liszt introduced uh, uh, it defies a lot of things that were going on at the time. He thought it was the music of the future. Of course, uh, Wagner um, definitely adopted a lot of the motifs, and there's a lot of overlap with uh, Liszt and Wagner, and uh, a lot of forward-thinking music, a lot of chromaticism, a lot of experimentation uh, to bring out different types of characters in the music. So, uh, at this point in time, you know the the raunchy traditionalists such as Brahms, they were you know the sonata form, and you know it's very specific music, you know. Uh, the continuation of classicism and you know strong emotion and tragedy and all that, um, but the 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 more progressive side the the Liszt the Wagner, um, the Berlioz to an extent, um, Symphony Fantastic uh, I would say is just firmly embedded in Romanticism, but there's a lot of different other Berlioz pieces that are uh, very forward looking um, and definitely progressive for their time. Like that Rebel we heard earlier with the Baroque music with all that dissonance. Um, that type of forward-looking uh, type of uh, nature was definitely embedded in uh, the Listian school, the Wagner school of uh, German music in the Romantic period, um, as well as uh, there was the, uh, the, the glorious Anton Bruckner, which we've done a few episodes about Bruckner on this podcast. Um, he was firmly in the Wagner camp, he dedicated his third symphony to Wagner, um, and he also was very focused on structure. Uh, the sonata form is apparent in all the Bruckner symphonies, and uh, he kind of modeled his own symphonies after Beethoven. So even though there's a lot of forward-looking aspects in terms of like chromaticism and you know, very strong, high uh, forward-looking uh, uh, music, especially with the codas of Bruckner symphonies. He was also very structured, um, and a lot of the, the things that uh, Beethoven uh, blew the walls out with uh, are tools that Bruckner would use in his symphonies. And uh, I can't do, uh, I, 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 I say he's a romanticist, but he's really like a super late romanticist. And because the, the form is so strong in Bruckner's music, I, 
I dare not say that he is a modernist. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll play some. Let's let's get some Bruckner going on here um, for late Romanticists. So we heard. Well, we talked about Schubert. Schubert was like early Romanticism. You know, Beethoven, I would say, was like the proto, the earliest of Romanticism. Then there was like Schubert, then uh, Mendelssohn, Brahms, and all that, that kind of started flushing it out more. And it went in all directions, all over the place. You know, we heard the, the Franck um, in France. And uh, then I think it reached its highest point in Bruckner, um, the whole Romantic uh, period, personally. Um, so uh, I think a good introduction would be the freaking coda of the first symphony, or ninth symphony, first movement. So let's get the ninth symphony. Oh, no. oh, who do we want? We want Vond. Yeah, let's get Vond. Let's see if he did this. I know he did this. All right, Gunther Vond. All right, all right. So I'm going to play the coda to the... Uh, the first movement of the Ninth Symphony, and the this point in time for Bruckner, he was just a master of music. He was so learned and so refined that it's indomitable. Uh, nothing comes close to this, in my opinion. Um, I think it's the highest expression of Western art. Um, uh, I would say there's something in every Bruckner symphony that I love a lot, but these later symphonies by Bruckner, I would say. Uh, I, I do like the fifth. The fifth has actually grown on me a lot because of the double fugue in the finale. But uh, um, I would say like a Symphony Six Ford um, is what uh, I was initially really into um, when it came to Bruckner. But now I appreciate all eleven symphonies. Granted, uh, two of them are not numbered. Um, some people call them the zero and double zero. Um, one's like the study quote unquote symphony that. Um, he annulled those. They're, they're not canon, um, but they're still wonderful pieces of music. Um, but I, I've chatted too much about Bruckner, but uh, uh, let's get into this Gunther Vond uh, playing some, uh, some majestic, wonderful freaking music.
that never gets old. That never gets old. Such power, so much majestic power in that Bruckner. Um, and I think the reason why I was drawn to Bruckner so much is because I, I was familiarized with Wagner, and Bruckner wrote the symphonies that Wagner never did, and just sheer power. Um, so some other romanticists, um, of course, there's Chopin. Um, I. I tend to like the pieces uh, of Chopin that most other people aren't into. I like his uh, first piano concerto. Um, I do like the raindrop prelude. Um, uh, those are my two favorite pieces by Chopin and not the, the showy pieces. So Chopin was really, you know, uh, very virtuosic with his music. And uh, when he dials back the flashiness, that's when I, I view the expression starts coming out more. So I'm not really much into the nocturnes. I know a lot of you guys probably are, but sorry about that. Um, as well as there's Verdi. Everyone knows who Verdi is. It's just a typical Italian romanticist, you know, big orchestrations and all that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think we should wrap up the romantic period. It lasted to about 1880-ish. Uh, this is, I, I, I view the, the end of the romantic period with the, the death of Bruckner. Um, and then uh, modernism is after that. So like the Gustav Mahler, I would consider to be more of a modernist than a romanticist and all of that. So uh, um, hopefully uh, you guys had uh, learned something about the romantic period. Of course, I forgot to mention Sansons and the, uh, the, the French school of classical. So there's the Sansons, and he was also ostracized, ostracized much like uh, Franck was um, for not sounding uh, too... Like Frenchy refined, um, so uh, Sansons. Everyone knows the the organ symphony that he wrote, the last symphony that he wrote. Um, I would also say some of his piano concertos are uh, really fantastic. Uh, a lot of great utilization of trills in some of his piano concertos. Um, but uh, yeah, let's wrap up there. Many period, like I said, it did go in a lot of different directions, and uh, we could do an episode on the German school, the French school, the Russian school. All that. This is just a brief overview of things that were going on in time, and while well, sharing a little bit of music with you guys. So, if you're not too familiarized with uh, romantic classical music, uh, hopefully this is a good gateway for you. Um, anyway, uh, next up is modernism. All right, so I am back, and we're going to talk a little bit about modernism. I did uh, go get the mail, and I took my dog for a short walk until the the Doberman and the dog came out. And, uh, yeah, that's the thing about owning a Doberman. It's not necessarily neighbor-friendly. Um, so, with modernism, you know, there's the Romantic period that we just discussed. Um, a lot of different directions that Romanticism flowed into. We talked about the German school, and the two camps there. Um, we talked about the French school, classical music, as well as uh, the Russian school. Um with modernism, now we start seeing like Americans and like Charles Ives, um, and more and more it's like the expressions just completely dispersed out all over the place. Um, I would consider uh, Elgar as a kind of a modernist. Um, uh, I know an individual in a classical music cult that I'm in uh, really uh, affirms uh, the Elgar. Um, I, I do like something specific by him the in the South, little piece that he wrote. Um, but with uh, modernism, and I'm foreshadowing, I'm going to play an Elgar piece for you guys here. But uh, um, 
with uh, modernism, the uh, the romantic flavors, the sonata form, and all that started waning, and there's more emphasis on like innovation. So all of a sudden, there's Stravinsky um, coming out with a all sorts of bombastic music that causes riots. And you also have Schoenberg um, with the serialism. Um, with serialism, it's more, uh, I wouldn't even necessarily call it music in some instances, it's more like esoteric mathematics, in my opinion. Um, but then you also had uh, some really strong figures like Sibelius. Uh, Sibelius was a great nationalist of Finland. I went to the Sibelius Museum uh, two years ago, 2022, um, a year and a half ago, and uh, a friend of mine there, uh, we went after hours, and I had to play on the Steinway in the Sibelius Museum, as well as I went to the Sibelius Monument and Helsinki and all that. Um, Sibelius was a phenomenal modernist. Uh, I, I championed the, the Second Symphony. The, the Seventh is also really interesting by him. Um, a lot of people, they tend to like the Fifth. I think the Fifth may not be perhaps the strongest by Sibelius, but uh, uh, also he wrote a phenomenal violin concerto. Um, really a great movement um, in there. And uh, so yeah, definitely for modernism. So we were less focused on form with modernism um, as it was with romanticism, but there's still a lot of overlap. Um, you know, there's not, it's not black and white, the transition between these different periods other than classicism reigning in the extravagance of Baroque. Um, with modernism, there's a lot of inventions going on with a lot of different characters from all over the place, as well as, you know, the Carl Nielsen, a Danish composer. Um, his first symphony is a romantic symphony. Um, you have Gustav Mahler. Um, I guess you could call him a late romanticist, uh, but we talk about, like, late romanticism. I, I think of, like, Bruckner, and there's more structure to Bruckner than... A Mahler. Um, so I, I would firmly put Mahler into a, a modernism, um, even though he does kind of harken back to some Romanticist sentiments. Um, and you also have the Shostakovich. Uh, Shostakovich, uh, I, I should probably play a little bit by him. Um, Shostakovich was a, a different type of Russian composer. How you had uh, the initial spurt of like the Russian composers having a Russian national identity, a lot of Orientalisms in their uh, music because you know Russia is firmly right next to Asia as part of Eurasia and all that. At least a good portion of Russia is if you want to get into nitty gritty of it. Um, like one part of it's in Europe and one part of it's in uh, Asia. That's why it's considered Eurasian. Um, and you also had uh, Ravel and. Uh, Bartok, Bartok uh, was a very forward-thinking individual. And actually, comparing Bartok to like Sostakovich, um, I I do think the music of Bartok is more dense. There's more going on there. It's more flushed out than Sostakovich, but uh, Sostakovich seems more like in the moment. Like he, he started composing in the moment and really started just being inspired and writing a lot of great music. Whereas uh, the Bartok, I think he spent more time on his music, honestly. It seems more dense, it seems more put together than Sostakovich. Even though Sostakovich is wonderful in a lot of different symphonies, I would definitely recommend the the 7th through the 12th symphonies. Uh, the 4th has some really great moments in it, too. Um, and uh, 
going back to that serialism, that kind of, I think, uh, Schoenberg kind of broke music. <laughs> I, a lot of people think Stravinsky did because his, the Rite of Spring caused a riot when it premiered. Um, but I, I, I think Schoenberg just being too experimental with serialism and all that, that it did kind of ruin the musical aspect of music, kind of like a, how industrial music has a lot of extra musical aspects to it. When I say extra musical, I mean it has non-musical aspects to it. So not like an instrument playing specific notes, more like uh, you take a Boyd Rice and having like sirens playing and a really simple beat behind it and him yelling, um, and that's industrial music. Um, I, I feel the same with the Schoenberg um, to an extent. You know, Schoenberg's more you know sophisticated and all that than the Boyd Rice, but um, he's throwing in like an extra musical aspect of uh, serialism there. Um, and serialism, when we talk about like the twelve tone row, um, that harkens back to Liszt um, and that uh, radical school, the German camp of like the Liszt, Wagner, and Bruckner. Um, a lot of chromaticism and a lot of experimentation going on there, but it was still firmly entrenched in being musical. Schoenberg, I think he breaches the line of music um, with his serialism. Um, and then we also had a Skryabin in the modernist period, another Russian, just kind of walked the path of his own life, really. He was really into mythology. He wrote music to destroy the world, uh, quote-unquote, and... Uh, yeah, the Scryobin is an acquired taste for a lot of people. Me personally, I, I tend to not really listen to much of his music, but uh, he's a good curiosity out there. Um, and another good curiosity is uh, Respighi. If you ever listen to Respighi, uh, he, he's very modern, but then he came out with his ancient Aaron dances, and it's like Renaissance and Baroque music. And really interesting character there. And uh, we talked a little bit about uh, Rimsky Korsakov. Um, Rimsky Korsakov was his mentor. Um, so Respighi uh, learned a lot about uh, music from Rimsky Korsakov and learned it from the best in terms of orchestration because Rimsky Korsakov was one of the best orchestrators out there ever in history. And uh, Bruckner is up there too, honestly. When you delve into like how masterful his orchestrations were. But uh, um, but yeah, uh, I've, I've tried too much. Uh, let me go into a little bit of Elgar here. Um, so you can kind of see a little bit of romanticist flavor still being in the modernist period. Um, and I, I will branch from there. I, I do want to delve into a different English composer, uh, William Walton, after Elgar, just to kind of showcase that he also incorporated the sonata form into a very modern type of expression. So let me go ahead and bring up some Ilgar in the south in the south here we go I love this piece I'll skip it forward a little bit so the cool part will greet you
The piece then goes into more modernist forms. I recommend it highly. Um, very interesting piece here. Um, also, just to kind of introduce you guys to more modernist flavors, I think I should introduce some uh, Shostakovich. Um, I'll get I'll get to the William Walton here in a moment, but I think Shostakovich twelve. It kind of starts out, and I know this podcast for metalheads. It kind of starts out a little bit slayery. Um, there's like a little slayer motif in here. Um, and then of course, you know, the Gorguts guy, uh, Luke LeMay or whatever he's called, um, he uh, is heavily into the Sostakovich and the Berg and all of that. Um, and you can kind of hear a little bit with Obscura and From Wisdom to Hate. Um, later, uh, Luke LeMay, um, I don't have any idea what he's doing with Gorguts, but uh, the Sostakovich influence doesn't appear to be there anymore. But I'll play a little bit of uh, Sostakovich the 12th. 12th is a very percussive symphony. Honestly, I would recommend the 10th before this, but as a uh, sheer introduction to Sostakovich, I think the 12th for a metalhead is where you should start, as well as the 8th string quartet. Um, there's some parts in there that's really bombastic all over the place, and and my friend uh, Sebastian Lowcar told me that Sostakovich wrote that in three freaking days. How he did that is beyond my knowledge. Like uh, Nowadays... I, when I write a piece on piano, it, it either takes a while or I just give up. <laughs> um, but I'm also really obsessing over like late Listian chromaticism, uh, omnitonality and all that. So um, that's why there's a hiccup um, with my musical output lately. I'm kind of obsessing on a really esoteric form of chromaticism. So um, let me go ahead and play some Shostakovich for you guys.
right, so uh, that's the beginning of the 12th symphony. And as you can tell, it's already pretty percussive at that point. And uh, it definitely continues the percussion throughout the symphony and becomes a percussion fest in the, the final moments of it. Um, I was thinking, too, is when you want to really get into, like, dark, moody, uh, modernist music, his fucking uh, first violin concerto... Something that's not really talked about that much. Let me, yeah, the Pascaglia. Let me play this for you. Um, and I'll cut it short because it is uh, nine minutes long. So we're not going to play the whole thing. But just kind of give you some flavors of Shostakovich. And this being lesser known. Um, yeah, it might be uh, beneficial for you. So let me uh, let me go ahead and play this for you.
I am sorry for shutting, closing that out so fast. Um, but yes, we, we are talking about modernism, not Shostakovich solely. Um, hopefully you guys like that piece. I think the, the first violin concerto, um, really good, strong music by Shostakovich. Um, again, the A-string quartet, definitely check that out too if you haven't heard that. Um, also, the 10th is pretty good too, the 10th string quartet um, by Shostakovich. Um, but as promised, I, I should share some uh, William Walton. William Walton's really interesting. Um, when it comes to like English modernist classical music, um, I personally was not really a big fan. You know, I did play a little Elgar for you. Um, however, I think William Walton had the, the goods with his two symphonies. Um, Sebastian Lidekar introduced me to Walton because I was a Germanophile. I was just like, give me, give me all the German stuff. Um, give me the, 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 the profound Veltschmus. Um, give me all that that makes me just want to just throw the world off from my perception and just focus solely on the, the musical expression. Um, so yeah, I'll play a little bit of uh, William Walton. I was thinking about those two symphonies are fucking fantastic. But uh, the second symphony, I think I should share this one because I do think it is a little bit better um, because it is so freaking modern. Um, and Sebastian Lidokar, this Lidokar spelled backwards there. Um, yeah, we'll use his uh, recording here. And this was also played as the last uh, classical cult, classical music cult meeting. Um, <laughs> But a uh, really interesting piece. Uh, a lot of things going on in the first movements in the sonata form. Um, the second movement is like a crazy, and it's like a volcanic eruption in it. And then uh, last movements all over the place. It kind of goes through different different characters. Um, so uh, let me let me play a little bit about uh, William Walton's first symphony or second symphony, the first movement. And uh, so you guys can hear a little bit of that.
All right, all right. Um, yes, so I feel like that like Indiana Jones flavor going on there. Um, yeah, uh, the whole symphony is fucking fantastic. And <clears throat> the way it's in the sonata form in that first movement is really wonderful because it's a very modern form. Like the, the, the textures going on, the, the harmonies being played, little micro melodies too. So you can see uh, it could be uh, Baroque-ish in a certain way with very modernist uh, expression. But the underlying structure of it is the sonata form. Um, and I think that's really wonderful from William Walton that he was able to do a very, very, very modern piece. And yet the the form of it goes all the way back to the classical period. Um, so we have delved into quite a bit. And I, for modernism, I see this thing coming up in the suggestions here, the Carlowicz. Carl Wicks is interesting. He died in a avalanche when he was like 33, 34, something like that. Um, his Lithuanian Rhapsody is personally my favorite thing that he wrote. Um, and it sounds a little bit like Tchaikovsky, um, but the the ornate flourishes that he's able to incorporate on, I think it was a Polish composer. It's very Slavic sounding. Um, the, the flourishes that he's able to incorporate are, Fucking beautiful, um, and he was a modernist composer. So, we, I'm not delving into serialism and all that. I'm not getting into the super dissonant stuff. I'm not playing any Bartok or anything or Pindarecki for you guys today. Um, but if you're interested in like that Shostakovich and even more dissonant forms of that, um, Pindarecki, um, Berg, Bartok, um, they're they're flavors you may, may like. Uh, but this Carlowicz guy, that's just in the suggestions here. Um, let me play the intro to this, like the first five minutes. It's fucking beautiful as hell. Um, I, I immensely love it. And then it kind of peters out. And I kind of get this with a lot of different, like, lesser known modernist composers, like Gear uh, Tveit. I think that's how you pronounce it T V E I T T. Um, he was a national socialist um, in Norway, <laughs> card carrying at that. Um, wrote a shit ton of music, and a lot of it uh, was lost in a, a fire. Um, and then he drank himself to death after that. Um, but to offset the, the National Socialist reference I just said, I'll, I'll play the Karlowicz, and then I'm going to play some Sphiridov, um and have like some apocalyptic communist music being played. So we even it out. So I, I mentioned something that was National Socialist, and I'll, I'll play something that's uh, communist. <laughs> Just so we're well-rounded here on this Necropolis podcast chatting about classical music and introduction to classical music at that. You're, you're getting the full flavor today, my, my friends. But here's the Colorwicks.
It almost sounds a little Rachmaninoff, uh, but I I think that uh, Rachmaninoff, you know, very very talented individual and all that, but he's more like an entry level composer. Um, I guess you would also call him like a post romanticist, um, but um, yeah, the there there are some textures in there. It sounds a little bit like Rachmaninoff to me. By the underlying structure, I would say it sounds more like Tchaikovsky um, with the wonderful little flourishes that he's able to do to really bring out the character of the piece. Um, but that's Carla Wicks. He did die in an avalanche. Um, so now, uh, just to wrap up today's episode, went through a lot of different expressions of music. You had the Baroque period, the Classical period, the Romanticist period, and now in Modernism. And I think the best way to end the Modernist uh, section here is to play some apocalyptic communist music um, from Sferdo, which I I do highly recommend his Winter Road Suite. Um, he's a composer who's not really well known in the West, um, but his Winter Road is very beautiful, and I I love it immensely. It's one of the more recent discoveries of mine that, that really clicked with me, but. Uh, his uh, pathetic oratorio um, is sheer apocalyptic Russian communist music, and it's definitely modernist. Um, so uh, let's delve into some apocalyptic communists over here today. Um, Мне рассказывал тихий еврей Павел Ильич Лавут. Только что вышел я из дверей, Вижу, они плывут. Бегут по Севастополю к дымящим пароходам. За день подметок стопали, Как за год похода. На рейде транспорты и транспорточки, Драки, крики, лугня. Бегут белогвардейцы, задрав порточки, Чистая публика и солдатня. Забыли приличие, бросили воду, Кто без юбки, кто без носков. Окей, okay, I, I really do apologize. Um, so the, the video was already like, partly into the song or the piece already and it was into the apocalyptic shit and then you have like the the choir singing behind it and it's really beautiful music behind the like the apocalyptic communist stuff <coughs> but it's of um shit now I have to play something real by him um this this piece actually starts out pretty good um but we uh, a fucking horrible image it looks uh very uh erotic stance you know riding the horse naked there um the the spirit of of course he, he was firmly entrenched in the the communist soviet russia stuff um the Winter Road, definitely check out The Winter Road. I know it's like greatest hits right here in the recommendations. The Winter Road is fucking fantastic. There are so many cool little parts of that. Um, and like there's this like little section about the, the wedding. And it's like, you'd think it would be the, the happy part of the, the suite. And it's not, it's really dark. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, the spirit of 
probably not the highest note to end this episode on. <laughs> you get the 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 eroticism of the naked guy riding the horse and the horse is like even questions like, Ooh, me, it's like ooh It's like what's going on here? <laughs> I'm sorry, this image is really messing with me, even though it's serious music, you know, apocalyptic, apocalyptic communist stuff, but this image that was chosen for this video was perhaps not the wisest. <laughs> um, but anyway, I hope you have enjoyed this brief overview of classical music, a brief introduction. Um, lots of wonderful things in classical music. Hopefully you have gleaned some uh, cool things from... Uh, today's episode I want to explore it further um, a lot of the metal being released nowadays sucks very much so it doesn't hurt to go into the past and discover fucking awesome music being made um, not necessarily riding horses naked as you see on your screen here but um, a lot of fantastic music has you know been released over the past you know, five six hundred years so um, definitely uh, thank you for listening and sorry if this is just uh, retarded episode or i can't say that word on this podcast i apologize sorry this was a silly um episode for you today um and uh cheers thank you for listening if you have weathered the storm with me um thank you and hopefully you heard something that you hadn't heard before that's why we're here we're here to talk about music and share music because as nietzsche said without music life would be a mistake <laughs>